<laughs> is it the last one of the decade? Yeah, I think so, because the next one is January 1st. Oh, shit. This is the last GWBB episode of, of the, the decade. decade. Hot damn. I hope you brought someone cool, because um, there's a lot of pressure on you now. Well, thanks, Hannah. <laughs> and I did. Thank you very much. Good. I always do. Well, awesome then. Yeah, yeah, you just hide behind that hair. Are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch, bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to ruse your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. So this is coming out on Christmas. Yeah, oh, welcome to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. <laughs> right. We know we've been on a break. Whew, we know it's tell? been a minute, and we know you can tell, and we love you for your patience. Thank, Thank you, you for your patience. Um, yeah, we went on a, a preordained hiatus that we decided for Thanksgiving to take a break, because you were traveling, you were going to shoot your film, and what have you. Yep. And then you came back, mm-hmm. and we recorded some episodes, and then a bunch of shit happened, and those episodes got lost into the ether of the of the interwebs in the world, and we're going to re-record them at some point, but we want to yeah. make our memories less fresh when we come back to those badass women. Yeah, I think, like, I want to I want to rediscover them in a more... More organic way, mm-hmm. rather than, yeah. Yeah. So... We're sorry we've kept you waiting, but hopefully it was worth it. I think it'll be worth it. Yeah. We've got some cool people. But we're here to give you a Christmas holiday present. If you don't celebrate Christmas, then happy winter gift. Happy um, Yule, which we're on the day we're recording, it started yesterday, which is Yule is the Germanic pagan, you know, winter holiday solstice that this is all holiday. based on. And Yule lasts from the solstice, which was started on the 21st through January 2nd this year. So that is also a welcome celebration on yes. this podcast. I mean, that's why we have Christmas trees. It's, well, and what I'm, I'm about to read you some stuff that I find very interesting about how women have influenced um, Christmas traditions. Really? I am. Okay. So I figured I would do that before we dive into... Yeah, let's bust, bust right on in there. Yeah. That sounds gross. I'm sorry. <laughs> I appreciated it. Yeah. Um, So yeah, uh, happy Christmas, happy Yule. I am going to read you something from a blog I had never found before, but I'm intrigued by. It's called revivingherstory.com. Okay. Uh, And the article is, When Santa Was a Woman, Five Christmas Histories You Want to Know. What? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to probably skim over a couple parts, so just bear with me for a sec, but it starts. Bearing with you. Thank you. It begins, you are probably familiar with the idea that Christmas has roots in pagan traditions. Yes. Maybe you have a vague notion that Christmas was borrowed from the winter solstice or some ancient Roman holiday. Yes. But you're busy Christmas shopping. You have holiday travel coming up. You have stockings to hang and trees to decorate. You certainly don't have time to go researching the origins of Christmas. No. The truth is, I was in the same boat. I had heard that once upon a time, pagan celebrations were co-opted by Christmas, and that was all I knew. But I have always wanted to learn more about this. Um, Blah, blah, blah. Now that I know how much Christmas owes to a feminine tradition, I will never look at Santa the same way again. So, um, (laughs) starting with number one. Kissing under the mistletoe. 
Yes. Kissing under the mistletoe can be traced back to the Norse goddess Frigga, whose son Baldur was killed by a mistletoe spear. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Explain what <laughs> you, just happened to my face. <laughs> you just looked so shocked. You sat up in shock. Um, when the gods brought Baldur back to life, Frigga declared that from then on, people passing under mistletoe should kiss in celebration. Oh, okay. That's Isn't that cute. cool? Yeah. While few people today would credit Frigga with this tradition, quote, the church seems to have known of the links to a pagan religion because traditionally mistletoe is not included among the greenery that decorates churches at Christmas. Which I think is interesting because holly decorates, um, right. is, is a decoration used, and that's also a pagan uh, Yeah, but they pick and choose, I Decoration, guess. but they but, pick but, and choose. But, but mistletoe, if you're supposed to kiss under it, is a yeah. pagan tradition that encourages sexual behavior and naughty, naughty, no, no. Naughty, naughty, no, no. <laughs> Those pagans. I like it. Those damn pagans. Um, number two, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. So once upon a time, Christmas Eve was known as Mother's Night, a festival held on the eve of Yule that celebrated the mothers. Uh, in the 7th century, and I don't know how to pronounce this, B-E-D-E, Beda. Okay. A monk living in a Saxon uh, in a Saxon England that was still largely quote heathen chronicled how the night before Christmas was known as Modronite or Mother's Night. Stretching back at least six thousand years, there are references all across ancient Europe to three all-powerful female gods called the Mothers. So the very fact that Christmas is celebrated on December twenty-fifth may have been borrowed from pagan traditions celebrating <clears throat> excuse me Mother's Night. Cool. Isn't that crazy? In addition to the well-more-known uh, celebration of Saturnalia, winter festivals included Yule, which we just talked about, a celebration of the children born after Mother's Night, and uh, Coliata, a celebration of the sun goddess Coliata. So what might these widespread winter celebrations have to do with the date of Christmas? The most loudly touted theory about the origins of the Christmas date is that it was borrowed from pagan celebrations. If Christmas looked like a pagan holiday, more pagans would be open to both the holiday and the god whose birth is celebrated. Mm -hmm. Number three, the Christmas tree and Christmas carols. The Christmas tree is by far the most iconic symbol of the season. Yes. The beloved evergreen is a holiday staple for Christian homes and has been adopted by countless non-Christian holiday lovers. Of yes. all the holidays traditions, the Christmas tree might have been uh, might have the most ancient and varied roots in a pre-Christian world. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the use of evergreen trees, wreaths, and garlands to symbolize eternal life was a custom of the ancient Egyptians. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. <laughs> the ancient Egyptians, Chinese, and Hebrews. Tree worship was common among the pagan Europeans and survived their conversion to Christianity. In Rome, the tree was a fir, um, and in Egypt, it was a palm tree. That makes sense, though. Yeah. Because in the winter, when things get cold and, and trees die, obviously, evergreens are called evergreen for a reason. Mm -hmm. It's a symbol of hope and, and weathering the storm and weathering the cold. And yeah. Life's triumph over death. Huh. is kind of what this how this phrases it. Yeah. Um, and f palm trees... So ancient Egypt, back to ancient Egypt, palm trees were sacred to goddesses from Ishtar to Inanna to Nike and Victoria. So too does the Christmas tree have roots in early Judaism. The ancient Israelite goddess Asherah was worshipped by erecting Asherah poles, which were either carved wooden poles or trees. Huh. 
So on and on and on. Uh, And the Christmas tree has other historic pagan roots as well, roots buried in the rich soil of Mother's Night. In the Viking saga, Eric the Red, on Mother's Night, a traveling winter seer would pay the locals a visit. She carried a tall, decorated staff and was greeted with a feast and incantations sung to summon the spirits of midwinter. The seer staff symbolized, you guessed it, a tree. The decorated, quote, tree was an early ancestor of the beautiful evergreen you have sparkling in your living room, and the sacred songs sung to the seer were precursors of today's Christmas carols. That's cool. Isn't that so interesting? Like, we're basically worshiping a goddess with our um, Christmas trees. Too loud. But what's funny funny to me is that so many (laughs) holiday traditions, for me, as a person who was not raised Christian, Mm -hmm. but celebrated secular Christmas my whole life, holiday traditions are not steeped in religion right but this is cooler to me to know like humanity has been doing some form of this yeah as a tradition all over the world for thousands thousands of years years. long long before uh the current calendar that we use yeah so what's more christmassy than chestnuts roasting on an open fire the yule log burning and stockings hung by the chimney with care uh, speaking of Yule logs, by the way, that's pagan. Yes. Yeah, the Yule log comes from Germanic pagan tradition where they would cut down a big tree and burn it over a long period of time, usually during Yule. Uh, so anyway, what childhood Christmas is complete without the time old tale of Santa coming down the chimney? No matter how intrinsic these traditions are to this Christian holiday, the fireplace, the hearth, and the Christmas traditions that surround it are rooted in history the tradition of celebrating the hearth wink wink wink, uh the tradition of celebrating the hearth comes from the goddess hestia whose name means hearth yes while families used to wait one of my mom's favorite goddesses actually oh really Mm -hmm. i feel like i hear you you hear her name used in various you know supernatural based tv shows and you know Mm -hmm. movies and stuff Mm -hmm. but i i don't know that any of them have ever actually talked about her correctly I think they talk about her in Buffy, actually. Doesn't My mom Willow used to have a, a, a blog where she would post her recipes um, that was inspired by Hestia because she. my mom loves to host and cook for people. and have oh. the, Yeah. So she, I think, feels inspired by Hestia frequently. That's so lovely. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Man, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, um, families used to wait for the goddess Hertha to descend through the chimney bearing her gifts long before there was a Santa Claus. Interesting. So Hertha and Hestia are where we get um, the idea of Santa Claus. Coming down the chimney Coming down the chimney and bearing presents. Because I I know, I'm not an expert, but like there was allegedly a St. Nicholas who would bring gifts to children. Yep. So we but know. surely this man didn't actually come down people's chimneys, so that's like a, uh, an amalgamation of those Well, two. and that's, that's something that early Christian tradition did a lot of. They would create saints to take over, to take the place of pagan gods. Or goddesses. Or goddesses. In this case. So I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly, St. Lu- Lucia is similar, which St. Lucia's Day was like a couple days ago, or maybe a, a week ago. That's, uh, the, the Swedes... 
still celebrate that, right? They it's do. with the candle Yeah, um, the candle wreath, wreath yeah. crown. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that and she her day, her legacy is taken from a, a pagan goddess. Huh. And so they did that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why there are so many saints. Yeah. It's to give pagans a Christian entity to pray to. Hmm. So um yeah. So Saint Nick took over for this goddess who would come down the chimney and uh, deliver you presents. Huh. And lastly, Santa's sleigh and holiday wishes for peace on earth. The Roman writer Tacitus tells us that at the midwinter, that at midwinter, the goddess Nerthus, whose name was synonymous with Mother Earth, rode a sleigh-like wagon pulled by oxen. What? Wherever she went, she spread holiday cheer and peace. It was a time of festive holiday making in whatever place she deigned to honor. Along with bringing holiday cheer, wherever Nerthus went, nobody went to war and nobody took up arms. Um, eventually, she was superseded by two goddesses, Freya and Frigga. Um, and at midwinter, Freya was incarnated as Mother Christmas in rituals all over Western Europe, touring the countryside in a wagon, though hers was not pulled by oxen, but by cats. <laughs> Which I love. Uh. Um, later, her presence was represented by wise women who were possessed by her spirit. Oh. There are loud echoes of Nerthus's sleigh-like wagon in Santa's sleigh. For sure. Um, of course, the oxen slash cats became reindeer, and the sleigh now flies. But one thing remains unchanged in the millennia since Mother Earth was the central figure, figure of Christmas. Wherever Santa goes, he brings holiday celebrations and wishes for peace on Earth. Whoa. So that is a little Christmas herstory for you. Wink. Wink about some of our um, well-known traditions, things that we all still do and do with gusto. They come from, from lady goddesses, my friends. That's wild. I know. And ridiculously though you didn't know it and I didn't know it, somehow segs pretty well into my non-Christmas-related person. Uh-oh. Because um, I'm going to talk about a person, you know, because it was just Mother's Night, right? Yes. Who was known as a mother to many downtrodden young folks. My goodness. But in a, a little bit of a, a wackier sort of way than your normal loving mother. All right, well, now I'm fucking excited. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on on our our Patreon. Patreon. (laughs) Oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. The quote I'm choosing to open with is, I am Ma. Because I give them what a mother cannot sometimes give. Money and horses and diamonds. Oh. 
Uh, my sources this week are Atlas Obscura, Smithsonian, and uh, I think it's the City Museum of New York. Um, dot org. Anytime it's from Atlas Obscura, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. Yes. Yes. So I'm going to uh, talk to you today about uh, Frederica Mar Mandelbaum. Whoa. I've never heard this name. Yes. You look so pleased at yourself. <laughs> I'm just impressed that somehow we managed to connect the dots without even communicating. I'm really curious how. Just Mother's Night. The Mother's Night connection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just okay. her being ma to all. To all that uh, she took under her wing. I love it. Um, yeah, here we go. Yes. Organized crime in New York <laughs> is often portrayed as a man's game. But one of the first and most influential crime bosses in the history of New York City was an Austrian immigrant known as Mother or Marm Mandelbaum. Whoa. Also called the Queen of Fences, this imperious and powerful woman became one of the most well-connected criminal figures of her day, buying stolen goods and reselling them, financing criminal endeavors, and even creating a school for young criminals. Oh, shit. Mm. Uh, She was born Frederica Henriette Auguste Weisner in 1827 in Hanover, Prussia. So she's Austrian-German because Prussia obviously oh, doesn't exist yeah. anymore. Um, she married a man named Wolf Israel Mandelbaum. Uh, he immigrated to New York City, and she then joined them there when she was 23. What a name. Yeah. Wolf, Wolf Israel? Israel Mandelbaum, Mandelbaum, which is sad because he's apparently like a really like forgettable man. Oh man. <laughs> With the name of Wolf. You Wolf. had such a cool name, dude. Wolf. Um, yeah. So they came to New York. They settled in a section of the Lower East Side known as Klein Deutschland, which is Little Germany. Yeah. Apparently doesn't exist anymore. Um, I can't imagine where you would find it now. Yeah. Where uh, they would would have tenements where 15 people lived in an apartment that was just 325 square feet. Um, Children were warned never to enter the Orchard Street lairs of the Romani women with their billowing skirts and gold flashing from ankle to teeth. But few fortunes in little Germany were worth hearing anyway, hmm. this says. Aww. So I guess it's got to be, you know, close to the Bowery. Yeah. it's Orchard Street. it's Orchard Street. Uh-huh. Wow. Mm. God, I'm just imagining that. Right? Yeah. It's interesting how New York has changed over the years. Yeah. I like that line, too, that few fortunes were worth being told. Oh, that's heart-wrenching. Kind of your heart, yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Have you been to the Tenement Museum? I still have not. It's really powerful um, and great. And they open up, just a quick tangent, they always open up by basically saying, hi, my name is Blah Blah. My family immigrated to America from XYZ. How about you? And everybody goes around. Oh, you really? Basically giving you a sense of the majority of Americans Mm -hmm. either are immigrants or came from immigrants. Yeah. And it forces you to think about that Mm -hmm. in a way you probably, most of us have probably never thought. Right. Yeah. Especially tourists and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, All right. Back to your regularly scheduled program. (laughs) Marm and Wolf scratched out a living as flamboyant street peddlers, hawking everything from rags to broken timepieces to scraps of silk, carrying their wares on their backs and setting up each morning on the street. Vendors used all manner of tricks to attract attention, blowing bugles, arranging pieces of fruit in bright, precarious octagons, dressing their horses in trousers. (gasps) But supply always exceeded demand. 
14-hour workdays might yield only $6 a week. And by then, Marmon Wolf had four children to feed, two four? sons and two daughters. Where? And they kept them in the tenement? Yeah. Oh, my God. They started building relationships with both the hordes of aimless children and the petty thieves <sighs> looking to get rid of their stolen loot. Marm's luck began to change after the Panic of 1857, when hundreds of businesses failed, banks closed, and tens of thousands of people lost their jobs. I didn't even know I that. I was going to say, that's news to me. Yeah. The Panic of 1857. I guess we're also focused on the Great Depression, because that's in more recent history. Right. This is like the same kind of thing. Wow. Hungry children roamed the streets selling bits of old rope and slivers of coal and eventually graduated oh. to the less grim business of pickpocketing and looting vendors, activities often sanctioned by parents and caretakers. Yeah. Uh, quote, I was not quite six years old when I stole my first pocketbook, wrote Sophie Lyons, who would later become one of Marm's most successful protégés. Protégés? Protégés. <laughs> Whew. Quote, I was very happy because I was petted and rewarded. My wretched stepmother patted my curly head, gave me a bag of candy, and said I was a good girl. Aww. Back to Marm. Descriptions of Marm were invariably anti-Semitic. Many mm. accounts of her rise to power call her a German Jewess, whose Ugh. race instinct spurred her to haggle. Yikes. God. Oh, God. But Mandelbaum was six feet tall and said to be between 200 and 300 pounds giving her an imposing physical appearance. <laughs> oh, my God. She had the eyes of a sparrow, the neck of a bear, and fat, florid cheeks. Whoa. Her tightly rolled black hair was topped off by a feathered fascinator, which failed to distract from her, quote, homeliness. She spoke only when she had to, as if her words were as valuable as her plunder. Her favorite saying, directed almost exclusively toward herself, was, it takes brains to be a real lady. Ooh. She spoke English as well as she did German, which made her a valuable associate to adult thieves as well. In 1865, she and her husband signed a two-year lease for a building at Clinton and Rivington Streets. So they opened... Oh. Yeah. So yeah, it okay. gives you a sense of... They opened a dry goods store, which would serve to act as the front of her burgeoning criminal operation. <gasps> oh, tricky. Was her, she like laundering money through this thing? She was fencing, which I had to learn oh, what that you, was. Oh, right. The queen of fences. Yes. Oh, shit. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> her husband, described by future protege Sophie Lyons, as was described as rather weak-willed for his calling, <laughs> oh, no. lazy and afflicted with chronic dyspepsia. And oh. he took a back seat while Marm built a criminal empire. Wow. Police Chief George Washington Walling, what a name, called her a thorough businesswoman and her husband a non-entity. Shit. <laughs> That's fucking harsh, man. Nell Kimball, a prominent madam of the era, also dismissed Wolf as a silent husband. Nell Kimball? What a good name. Right. When he died in 1875, he left Marm with four children, ranging from 8 to 15, and therefore she expanded her circle of contacts, networking at her synagogue and the neighborhood beer and oyster halls. She became a familiar presence at the so-called Eighth Ward Thieves Exchange, a sort of Gilded Age Walmart in the Bowery, and befriended crooked cops and judges in the nearby Fifth District Court. Tammany Hall politicians recognized her growing influence in the 13th Ward and always stopped by her store to say hello, reasoning that she could help them rally the Jewish vote, even if as a woman she wasn't permitted to cast a ballot herself. Oh, so they recognized that she was gaining a lot of influence and power. And that people listened to what she had to say. I mean, this is why it's stupid when you have laws that are deciding 
these people get rights and these people don't because imagine like <laughs> this is exactly what i was saying at the beginning of this episode it women should be silently shaping history yes and not getting the credit they're due right not even being talked about and and uh, you know it, clearly people didn't care men and women alike were coming to her obviously mm-hmm Men and women both were were, and she was weirdly kind of a proto feminist, and I'll get into that Ooh, later. But I don't, right. I don't know if it's intentional. But anyway, fascinating. So fencing stolen items became her main hustle. A criminal would steal anything from jewelry to furniture, sell it to her, and she would turn around and sell it to another buyer. Mm-hmm. Her favorite items were bolts of silk and diamonds, both of which Ooh. she could buy on the cheap and sell at a huge markup. But she'd take anything. Following the Great Chicago Fire, apparently someone showed up at her shop with a herd of goats that they stole. What? <laughs> and she took them and sold the goats. What the? Wait, they took the, they got the, the goats, goats from Chicago, from Chicago. <laughs> brought them to New York because they knew she'd buy anything. And she bought the goats and sold them. That's insane. Yeah. Why would you go all the way to New York to sell these fucking goats? Maybe because they wanted to get in her good graces. Be like, look at this loot. That's a good point. I was like, there has to have been She's someone in Chicago. Powerful. But- if, you're, if your motive is to get with her, yeah. get in good with her. Maybe yeah. not get with her. But. As her power and finances grew, she branched out into financing bank robberies Ooh. and supporting all manner of criminal enterprises ranging from blackmail to theft to burglary. Damn, girl. It was her formidable network that allowed her criminal enterprises to grow. She was known to fastidiously bribe and pay off police, local politicians, and judges who allowed her operation to become a criminal ring worth millions of dollars. She was a mafia. She was a mob, basically. Mm-hmm. At some point, she came to understand the American system, says uh, Conway, who wrote a book about her. Um, the American system is you get what you pay for. Mm-hmm. She didn't so much join the underworld as tweak it to her preference, <laughs> treating crime itself as a commodity to barter. No mere receiver of stolen goods, she was, according to the newspapers of her day, the greatest crime promoter of all time. She was the person who first put crime in America on a syndicated basis and the nucleus and center of the whole organization of crime in New York City. That's insane. That is fucking bananas. Uh, This was 18... It's the 1840s to to, uh, 70s and stuff like that. She opened up her shop in 65, like... Holy shit. Yeah. And That's just, amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she dealt in plunder of all kinds. We talked about that. Silk, lace, diamonds, horses, carriages, silver, or gold, silver, bonds. Why does it say silver twice? And could <laughs> estimate the value of a thief's swag with quick and ruthless scans. Her own hands, of course, always remained unsullied, as a good mob boss does. She yes. cracked no safes, picked no locks, dodged no bullets. She was a student of the law and understood that uncorroborated testimony meant very little, so she took care to deal with one crook at a time. She basically created a blueprint for future yeah. gangs, like the mafia, like the mob, yeah, to, to get their fucking crime empires underway. Yeah. Because she, you, like you said, she was the first, really. That's what... In America, anyway. That, That's yeah. crazy. That's what I gather. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. What? It's. I feel like so much of our podcast is us learning that women basically create blueprints for things that then men go on to. Yeah, get credit get for. Get credit for and become notorious for. And it's wild. It is wild. As her empire grew, she hired a network of associates, engravers to doctor jewelry. 
cab drivers for quick getaways, and perhaps most vital, defense attorneys Big Bill Howe and Little Abe Hummel. She paid their renowned firm an annual retainer of $5,000, which in the 1800s is a massive amount of money. Yeah. Um, In all her years in business, she only took one person into her confidence, a man aptly named Herman Stauda, often anglicized as Stout, Hmm. who always accompanied her when she went to assess merchandise. One of her sons or daughters would come to to keep watch for detectives. Whoa. On average, she offered one fifth of the wholesale price of goods. Sellers Hmm. had to remain in her sight at all times during a deal and money changed hands only when the goods were in her possession. After transactions, Stouda would lug the goods to one of her numerous warehouses or to her home, where she had a series of hiding places. Her favorite was a chimney with a false back. (laughs) Speaking of chimneys. chimneys. um, Behind which a dumbwaiter could be raised or lowered with the yank of a lever. In case of a suspicious knock on the door, she would gather up an armful of loot and drop it out of sight. Whoa. Does that, do you know if this place still exists? Like, I doubt it. Man. I wish they would have, like, turned it into a museum or something. That would be crazy, right? To grow and support her network and to make sure other rivals didn't entice her prospective young thieves, she is said to have created a school that would train the many children living on the streets to be criminals under her care. The city was inundated at the time with orphaned (laughs) children. Street rats, they called them. Yeah. While no official transcripts of curriculum seems to exist, her Grand Street School became maybe the first and most successful training center for crooks in the city. It was opened around 1870, and she invited both young men and women to come and learn the criminal trades from professional thieves, pickpockets, and con men. When young 'er ne'er-do-wells enrolled in the school, they started off learning about smaller crimes like pickpocketing and petty theft. They would be taught about things like misdirection and the finer points of thieving. And then if they had a knack for it, their training would advance. If you're doing very well, you graduated up into other more important things, which would include outright robberies and scams. Other higher level subjects included safe cracking, blackmail and burglary. So it's a vocational school for crime. Yes. That's insane. Yes. What? And and because she (laughs) paid off the cops and the judges (laughs) and stuff, nobody cared. Wow. Oh, my God. Her star pupils would eventually move on to work directly for her. And her enterprise obviously had a symbiotic relationship with the criminal community in that she needed a constant flow of thieves bringing her merchandise and they needed a quick and reliable place to sell their ill-gotten gain. Yep. One of her greatest students was Sophie Lyons, who became a master blackmailer and thief, who, after working for Mandelbaum, went on to have her own impressive criminal career, becoming known as the Princess of Crime. Ooh. I know. There's like so many women who get listed that I'm like, how in the fuck? I just want to cover them all. Well, I mean, we'll have to at some point. One of Sophie's scams involved luring men to a hotel room, letting them get naked, then stealing their clothes and extorting (laughs) them for cash to get their clothes back. Oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, that's so simple and yet so elegant. Yep. In the early 20th century, (laughs) however, she reformed, denouncing her criminal career and her association with Mandelbaum's training. In her autobiography, she basically decried the tutoring that had been given to her, saying that she uh, she was taking advantage, Mandelbaum being she, taking advantage of her youth and innocence, leading her down a path of crime. Hmm. Whether or not her school was luring impressionable youth into a life of crime, her willingness to train and employ women in her crime ring created opportunities that were simply not available elsewhere. Right. 
Despite the fact that was it was in the arena of crime, Mandelbaum was credited with being one of the first feminists of the time because she was able to get women jobs in which they made more money and were able to use their skills in better ways than they did working in factories or as maids. Wow. And, and they could use their skills. I mean, like Sophie Lyons, who utilized the fact that she was a woman and no one it's thought she was so capable. So frequently on our podcast, we come across women who get away with shit because... People think that women couldn't be capable of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But obviously they are. Um, yeah. So Marm, she specifically had an affinity for female crooks <laughs> and encouraged the yeah. ambitions of a gaggle of noted pickpockets and blackmailers like Black Lena Kleinschmidt, Big Mary, Ellen Clegg, Queen Liz, Little Annie, Old Mother Hubbard, Kid Glove Rose, and the aforementioned Sophie Lyons. They all have the coolest fucking names. Hollywood, are you fucking paying attention to this? You're right. I cannot believe we keep making dumb movie after dumb movie when there is a treasure How trove. does Scorsese keep making the same movie over and over when he could literally make this movie? I mean, this is the fucking gang ladies of the 1860s or whatever this is. Yeah. Like, their names, their professions, the shit they get away with. It's, I like, my mind is blown right now. Yes. Uh, but yeah, so Sophie... It says that here she became one of the most famous con women in American history. Oh, my God. Um, certain favored associates enjoyed the benefits of her Bureau for the Protection of Criminals, which was a fund that provided bail money and legal representation. Oh, my God. <laughs> she thought of everything. Uh-huh. Um, but on the less supportive side, she had very little pity for the wives of thieves unlucky enough to get caught and sent to prison. Mm. Who were like, my husband's in prison. Can you help? And she's like, no. He, he made was stupid choice. enough to get caught. Yeah. Um, <laughs> she refused their pleas for money and insisted they work for it. She was like, I'm not just going to give you money because your husband got arrested. Do you want a job? Because I can give you a job. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Most women wow. she griped were, quote, wasting their life being housekeepers. They could be so much more. Mm. They could be the greatest con women of all time. Yep. Uh, the Grand Street School operated for only about six years. It closed down in about 1876. Um, the reason she shut down the school is because she found out that the son of a police officer had enrolled. Uh-oh. And that was slightly suspicious. And instead of just, like, kicking him out or whatever, or make it, she, she was like, nope, we're done. Bye. She shut it down. Yeah. Didn't want any Because she wants to keep her hands clean. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yep. Yep. She can have uh, plausible deniability. Right. Uh, But even after the closing of the school, her empire continued to grow and thrive. In addition to the apartments above her Clinton Street shop, where she conducted most of her business, she eventually had to keep a pair of warehouses in the city to hold all of her dirty merchandise. Whoa. By 1880, she was in arguably the most successful fence in the United States, selling to dealers in every major city along the East Coast and in Canada. Oh, my God. Over the course of her career, she handled an estimated $5 million to $10 million in stolen property. Dozens of preeminent bank robbers and thieves sought her business, and she mentored those who displayed exceptional cunning. Through Marm's patronage and connections, Adam Worth became a notorious international art thief known as the Napoleon of crime. Under her tutelage. God damn. Mm-hmm. International. Yes. I mean, she was a fucking. She was super mom to all these criminals. Woman. Yeah, but she would. But it was for the business. Like it, it's because crime was what she knew. She was a skill she had fucking come to understand, 
I mean, if it had been anything else that she, you know, could monetize in the way that she could crime, she probably would have chosen that, I assume. I mean, yeah, starting off as a street peddler. Yeah, but crime paid. As a, as a poor immigrant in New York trying to support your four kids and your deadbeat husband. <laughs> yeah, she just had a mind for business. Clearly. She clearly saw where things could be. Uh, it's insane that she was able to create this from nothing. From, yeah, from nothing. Eh. Anyway, in the spring of 1884, New York District Attorney Peter Olson hired the Pinkerton Detective Agency <gasps> to infiltrate Marm's operation. <gasps> Detective, they got the Pinkertons The in Pinkertons there? got in there. <laughs> this is just like a movie. It's a fucking movie. God damn. And as with all good crime bosses, the simplest thing is what brought her down. Oh, so Detective Gustav Frank, using the alias Stein, took lessons from a silk merchant on quality and pricing. After an introduction from a supposedly loyal client, Marm began conducting business with him. Uh Uh-oh. When the police raided her various warehouses, they discovered the silk Stein had sold her because he, like, stamped it. Oh. It's just to prove it was stolen. Right. Um, And and there was enough loot in there to put her away for life. Oh. Quote, it did not seem possible that so much wealth could be assembled in one spot, one journalist marveled. There seemed to be enough clothes to supply an army. There were trunks filled with precious gems and silverware. Antique furniture was stacked against a wall. It's like the fucking Cave of Wonders in there. Yes. Uh, Yeah. So Marm, her son Julius, and her son Herman, nope, her son Julius and Herman Stauda were arrested that July. No. Marm issued a rare statement. Quote, I keep a dry goods store and have for 20 years past. I buy and sell dry goods as other dry goods people do. I have never knowingly bought stolen goods. Neither did my son Julius. I have never stolen anything in my life. I feel like these charges are brought against me for spite. I have never bribed the police nor had their protection. I never needed their protection. I and my son are innocent of these charges. So help me God. Whoa. Fascinating, right? So she like she kept her hands clean that whole time purely so she could make that statement Mm -hmm. when she was finally caught. Yep. Did it work? (laughs) No, but Ah. but on December 5th of that year, she jumped bail and Uh fled to Ontario Uh where she set herself up as an ostensibly law abiding citizen who donated to charities. Oh, right, right. So she, she, she was like, bye <laughs> to the U.S. and took her money and went oh. and, and like peaced out. Uh, there were occasional reports that Marm had revived her career as a peddler, going door to door with armfuls of lace, sometimes calling herself Madame Fuchs, other times giving no name at all, and that she sometimes slipped back into the States in disguise. Legend has it that Marm, upon learning of the death of her youngest daughter, donned a disguise and traveled a circuitous route by train and private carriage back to New York and supposedly watched Mm. the procession from afar and immediately returned to exile. (laughs) She died in 1894 while still living in Canada. Her body was returned to New York to be buried and a number of mourners at her funeral reported being pickpocketed. Marm Mandelbaum and her school may not have been on the right side of the law, but in her role empowering women she trained and employed, she was on the right side of history. Ah, fuck yes. Isn't that insane? Ah. Fucking do this movie. Six feet tall and 250 pounds? 
Yeah. Give this to some woman who can win an Oscar. Oh, my God. Can we, like, cast Margot Martindale or some shit like that? She's too short, but come on. Yeah. Dude, this, I mean, this could be, like, like a catch me if you can. Yes. Kind of story. Yes. Like, poppy and fun and smart and tense and. And then she gets away in the end. Like, she gets caught and then is like. Okay, well, uh, can you just set my bail and then, okay, but goodbye. See ya. But she just runs. I call that a happy and ending. And goes to Canada where they can't bring her back. Dude. She can't be extradited. Oh, it's so good. I just can't believe that she basically created organized crime in, in New America. Yeah. In New York. That is. At least in her neighborhood. Yeah. And there were other, you know, crime bosses at the time, but she was the reigning supreme because she had the school and had the most to offer children who were looking for jobs and yeah. education. Yeah. And she saw she saw the value in using people, women and children specifically, who are traditionally undervalued and underrated an, by an unsuspicious, no? Yeah, according to people. Yeah, like people, people don't, don't find them suspicious. Yeah. And so she utilizes that in a way that is just really fucking smart. Because she knows. And utilizes it to her advantage when the, the the magnifying glass is pointed at her. Being like, I am but a simple dry goods store owner. <laughs> yeah. I'm just a silly woman. I love it that. It takes brains to be a real lady. Man. Oh, you picked a good one. Mother to all criminals. Amazing. Frederica Marm Mandelbaum. Marm. 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 Ma'am. Dude, thank you. You're welcome. It's the second time I've done lady crime bosses. But I love it. Because they're so complicated. They're she so complicated. She seems slightly less so petty smart. than the last ones. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. She like, didn't like have tons of vendettas and, you know, she didn't she get her did, hands dirty. Know, but she definitely did not get her hands dirty very intentionally. Mm, she was savvy. Which is smart as fuck. Yeah, she was really, really smart. Running a crime ring. But not committing the crimes yourself, just being the person, you know, pulling the trigger, as it were. An international crime ring. Well, she helped people who would go internationally, but I think it was mostly New York where it was happening. But I guess international if you count Canada. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I I think of it. She's up and down. She's got got people in every city. On lock. That's crazy. Yeah. And to never have pulled the trigger or picked the pocket yourself, that is bananas. But, you know, manipulating desperate, young, hungry children into doing it for you. But then they feel cared for and validated. And yeah, then they've got some skills. It's, yeah. <laughs> anyway. My, my mind is blown. She's crazy. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I just, yeah. Um, do you want some on this day? I do. Some December 25th on this day. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me. Tell me about Christmas. I will. Um, in 1336. Nope. 336. Ah. 336. That's the first documented sign of a Christmas celebration in Rome. Oh. I think probably the they mean the conventional Christian. Yes. Yeah. For sure. 800, the coronation of Charlemagne as Holy Roman Emperor in Rome. Really? Which I just learned this week that there's apparently um, some conspiracy theorists who think that Charlemagne was made up. Whoa. Like there's a whole like a bit of history that's just invented. Oh. And that Charlemagne d- didn't exist. But like was. he's kind of like King Arthur, like maybe just maybe 
I don't know. I didn't look into it too much, but it came up in trivia. All right. Well, we're going to have to look into that. All right. Yes. And then in 1066, on December 25th, William the Conqueror is crowned King of England. Damn. Is is the 25th the day for crownings? I guess. All right. Coronations. Coronations is the word I was looking for. Yes. 1758. Halley's Comet is cited by Johann Georg Palitz. Oh. Palitz. P-A-L-I-T-Z-S-C-H. Whoa. Palitz. Yeah, I don't know. Palitz. I'm going to go with what you're doing. Confirming Edmund Halley's prediction of its passage. Okay. This was the first passage of a comet predicted ahead of time. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep. 1776. George Washington and the Continental Army crossed the Delaware River at night to attack Hessian forces, serving Great Britain at Trenton, New Jersey the next day. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. All right. 1809, Dr. Ephraim McDowell performs the first ovariotomy. Uh-oh. Removing a 22-pound tumor. <gasps> From the ovaries? Sounds like. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. 1831, the Great Jamaican Slave Revolt begins. Up to 20% of Jamaica's slaves mobilize in an ultimately unsuccessful fight for freedom. Oh, shit. It's a lot. Yeah. Uh, 1868, United States President Andrew Johnson, first U.S. president to get impeached, FYI. Oh, yes. Grants an unconditional pardon to all Confederate veterans. Oh, fuck you, Johnson. Mm-hmm. 1951, a bomb explodes at the home of Harry T. Moore and Harriet V. S. Moore, early leaders of the civil rights movement, killing Harry instantly and fatally wounding Harriet. Whoa. Ugh. Yep. 2003, the ill-fated Beagle 2 probe released from the Mars Express spacecraft on December 19th stops transmitting shortly before its scheduled landing. Oh. Boo. Poor thing. Was this was this the one? No, that one I think landed and had been communicating for years. You mean oh, the yeah. one that was just like singing we were happy all... birthday to itself and then died? No, I was thinking about the one. But that's fucking so sad. <laughs> Whatever, whichever one that was, that's terrible. But no, there was one last year that was like, he was like, my lights are dim or something like that. I'll have to find it. But there was a, there was a big, you know sort of hubbub about this probe dying finally yeah uh Amazing. birthdays uh 1584 margaret of austria queen of spain Ooh. 1884 evelyn nesbitt american model and actress who was the the murder of the century woman she was the w- girl on the swing from ragtime oh i was like why is that name so familiar yeah nesbitt mm-hmm. okay Yep. Wow. She was the center of a huge murder trial because yeah. her husband killed her lover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then deaths, 2008, Eartha Kitt. Oh. So it's been 11 years oh, man. since Eartha Kitt died. Wow. And Santa Baby was like so iconic. Mm-hmm. Her version of Santa Baby. Oh, yeah. That's so weird. I didn't realize she died on Christmas. I didn't either. Wow. It reminds me of like the dude bros who are like really upset about Zoe Kravitz cast to play Catwoman as if they fucking forgot that Eartha Kitt was Catwoman long yeah, before you most idiots. people. Oh my God. Racist morons. They'll look for any excuse to be yeah. pissed off about. I women. love Eartha Kitt. She's amazing. Yeah. We have to go listen to Santa Baby now. Okay. Okay. 
Uh, Which is appropriate for Christmas. I know. It's the right timing. What are you excited about? Um, I'm excited that we are going to go see Star Wars. Yes, we are. In a couple days, yeah. actually, slash tomorrow. No spoilers. No spoilers. We don't know what happens. We don't know what happens, or I guess we will after you hear this episode, but... Um, Not at the time of recording. Yeah. So I'm excited to see that with okay. you. Yay. Yeah. That's right. it. Okay. And I think this has been a long episode, so... <laughs> yeah. I Welcome think- back. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, happy Kwanzaa. Whatever you celebrate, this is our winter Yule gift to you. Yes, ma'am. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. So uh, on that note, peace out, witches. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. <laughs> Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gwbbpodcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.